Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. He began laying the foundation last week as he made it clear that there is, uh, there is now, uh, there's now no alienation between the Ephesians and, and God. Whereas alienation at one time existed, as we will continue to explore this morning now, um, that has been eliminated, right? We were dead. You were dead, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1. But now, verse 4, you're alive. You were hostile and and aggressive, but now you are affectionate. This is what God has done in uh, Christ for you. And as a result, there is uh, no reason for any type of celebration of the flesh, but instead every reason for worship and appreciation of him. There's this realization that Paul is bringing each one of us to. Right, that as we enjoy benefit of Christ's justifying work on the cross for us, it's not because of what we have done that we are able to enjoy said benefits, right? But it's entirely because of who Christ is and what He has done. There's no, there's no cause for boasting in the flesh. Instead, there is, there is plenty of room for worship and appreciation of King Jesus because he is the one who has accomplished the work and we are now reaping uh, the, the, the positive benefits of that. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are now, right, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for his people to walk out. Salvation, as one editor highlights, is not based on what we do, but the good things we do as Christians are the result and consequence of God's new creation work. We're not saved by our works, but, but certainly there is this element, right, in which our works now display the authenticity of God's redemptive work in Christ Jesus for you and I. We're not saved by our works, but but certainly, as Paul states here, there are good works which have been prepared by God beforehand for us to live in light of, for us to display, right? We we talk oftentimes of, of marks, right? Marks that, that support the authenticity of the gospel. Marks that support our new existence in Christ Jesus. Marks like generosity, forgiveness. Love, compassion, kindness, grace, joy, perseverance, persistence, and hospitality. These These are marks that make the Christian identifiable. They make us as Christians distinct. Interestingly enough, these are, these are attributes that are, of course, present and perfected in Christ and now in you, speaking toward and supporting the trustworthiness of the gospel message. So that we now live as a, a people leaning into articulation of the gospel. Or we understand and have experienced the benefits of the good news of what Christ has accomplished in redemptive history for you and I, for sinners who are now brought near. As a result, man, we, we articulate the message. It is sweet on the lips of the Christian. We can't help but to talk about it. We, we celebrate it and, it, and it infiltrates everything in our, everything in our lives. 
Love for Jesus, joy in the living out of his word and care for one another. These things flow out of Christ as characteristics that we now possess as his people. I want us to connect what we saw in chapter 1 and what we've been reading in chapter 2. You see, not only did God elect you outside of time and space as we know it, but he ordained certain actions and activities for you to live out. He saw you. And he saved you. Then he prepared a path for you to love and serve your neighbor. Let's get super practical for a moment, right? For you to love and and serve your spouse, your husband or your wife, your friends and your coworkers. God saw you and he saved you. He chose you for himself in Christ. And then he said, okay, now this is the way this is all going to play out. You are going to now walk out of these good works. You're going to walk out a a, a love for your local barista. Your waiter or waitress. The ones that you interact with on a Friday night. Your professors or your teacher's assistants, right? The telemarketer, amen? (laughs) You guys are walking it out. The intern at your office, right? I think that we're, I think that we're getting what this looks like. This is what Paul is saying in verse 10, where he communicates this idea that we must see and understand in order to come around verses 11 through 22, where we see that in Christ, we are a new creation. The first thing that that Paul talks about is the unity that his readers enjoy with God as we turn our attention towards verse 11. The unity that we enjoy with God and others accomplished in Christ. Look with me at verse 11 as as we transition into this morning's portion. Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. I want you to keep count of these, okay? We're going to kind of have a, a short, intentional, brief pause between each one of these statements from Paul. Number one, right? Separated from Christ. Two, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Three, strangers to the covenants of promise. Four, having no hope. And five, without God in the world. Paul draws out five areas of lack for the Ephesians in their previous condition from verses 11 and 12. He's intentional in identifying As we'll see from from this morning's passage, Christ's death in your place and his resurrection has changed, changed your situation as Gentiles, referring to or referred to as, verse 11, the uncircumcised. Having been encouraged along with the circumcised to embrace what Paul refers to in Colossians 2, verse 11, that is the circumcision of Christ or the cleansing of the heart. I want to talk for a a moment around goal and intention by way of our time in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. I mean, if you're here today as a skeptic of the faith, 
asking questions right, of what it means to, to really believe on the gospel and to follow Christ with your life. Know that this is where Paul is, is driving you, the cleansing of your heart. Know that this is, this is our desire for you, that you would look to Jesus and the power of his resurrection and become the recipient of a new heart. This is the way that it works. God accomplishes his, his power and purposes as he makes our blind spiritual eyes to see the glory of Christ, to look to him, to see our condition and to, and to see his majesty, to see his goodness and to cast ourselves upon his finished work. This is where Paul's driving. If you're, if you're a skeptic, Paul is encouraging us this direction this morning to see the heart of Christ, to become the recipient of a new heart. As you witness other Christians in this room participate in this weekly gathering in which we together celebrate God's grace in giving us new hearts through faith in Jesus. We come together right every, every seventh day and we celebrate who Christ is and what he has accomplished on the cross for us. We recognize our, our previous condition and we come into this room with, with gratitude. We come into this room with joy. We come into this room lifting high the name of Jesus. Why? Because there's this, there's this understanding. An understanding that Paul is, is pointing those that he is writing to here in Ephesians chapter 2 toward. That your posture has been, has been changed, Right? That your condition has been changed. Your position has been changed. For the second time in 12 verses, Paul encourages his readers to reflect back on that which was. This time of, of Jew and Gentile relations prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. A relationship that is marked by separation. A relationship that's marked by disinterest and disunion. As Gentiles were seen by, by many Jews as inferior. Given that they lacked the covenant sign of God given to his people apart from, to, to set them apart, to distinguish them from all other people. Here, Paul is calling the Ephesians to remember their alienation. That's what he's saying here. In many more words, right? Remember your alienation. Remember how you were strangers to the promises of God. Remember how you were without hope given, given their relationship or lack thereof with God, verse 12. Essentially, Paul says this, remember your situation before your conversion. This is the second time in two weeks that we've kind of like dug in on this point, isn't it? This is the second time in two weeks that Paul digs in on this point. Remember your situation before your conversion. Listen like this. This is kind of what it sounds like, okay? Remember where you were before you were who you are. Remember where you were before you were who you are. Remember your lacking of certain privileges. Remember the deficiency in your pre-Christian state, as one commentator draws out, for the purpose of... 
Why remember all this? Why revisit all this? Why does Paul take the time to articulate these, these, five, these five realities experienced by the, the Gentiles in their previous condition, in their previous state? Why does, he, why does he draw this out? What is he desiring? Well, here's what he's desiring. And this sets all of us on a trajectory towards Paul's desired response from his readers. God's desired response from the reader. How do we respond this morning? Why are we being encouraged this direction? Why are the Ephesians being encouraged this direction? Well, it's simple. Right, so that they would, they would gain or maintain a great appreciation for the privileges that they now enjoy. You got to remember who you were before you were who you are now in order that you might have a greater appreciation for what God has accomplished and the benefits that you now experience in Christ Jesus. All of this is about lifting up Jesus. I don't know if we're getting that. Like, are we getting that from Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Going all the way to back to chapter one, right? Like he, he zones in, he narrows in, he focuses in on God's work to, to rescue, or God's work to elect, God's work to redeem. What does this do? Well, it produces a posture of humility and, and gratification for the, for the Christian, right? For you and I, and it, and it exalts God, right? It exalts Jesus. It makes Jesus really big and it makes us really, really small. Paul says, remember your previous state, right? Remember your previous condition in order that you might achieve or maintain a greater appreciation of the privileges that you now enjoy. Detailed, beginning in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. Here we go. This was your previous condition, right? All types of alienation. All types of disunity. All types of problems without hope without God. Now in Christ Jesus, Paul writes in verse 13, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Well, what is this dividing wall of hostility? Store that away. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a few moments. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Here's what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. He says, you have been brought near. You were alienated. There was division. There was divisiveness. There was hopelessness. But now you have been brought near. And there is indeed an instrumental cause of your new position. We're not left to speculate. What is it that has accomplished this? How do we go from being so desperately far off to being so close? If we put ourselves in the position of the Ephesians, perhaps that's a question that they are asking. Like, we think that we get this, but what are you driving us towards, Paul? Well, there is no speculation. He answers the question in verse 13. What is it that has caused this new position? Simple. 
It's the blood of Jesus. Verse 13. There's an emphasis from Paul, isn't there? Right? There's, a, there's an emphasis from Paul on the redemptive work of Christ, the power of his blood and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Right? His death for you. His resurrection for you. So that you might in him stand before God, not as an enemy, but as a son. Or you see, you might stand before God, not as an enemy, not with animosity, but as a daughter. Paul is super clear on this point. Right, he's super clear on this point, and he uses language that perhaps many of us are familiar with. This second section that we are in in Ephesians chapter 2, I was thinking about this, man. It just flows so well, doesn't it? Like You just read it, and if you hadn't read it before, like you may stumble a little bit because like Paul's writing is just like one like run-on idea after another. right? You're just deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. But if you read it a couple of times and then you go back and you just begin to read it out loud, it flows super well. You just read it and you go, yeah, here we go. We're just moving right along. And I was thinking, you know, it almost is, um, and this is a poor analogy, okay? It doesn't do justice, but I want you to hang with me, right? It's, it's kind of like the theme song, the intro song to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, okay? Who knows the theme song to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? If you don't have your hand up, you're simply a liar. Like, <laughs> you're a liar. We all know that song. And, and here's the thing, right? It's like, when that comes on, you can just kind of like zone out. You can just take a back seat and you can just like bounce it off, right? You can be washing dishes and just, just rattle it off and not even be thinking about it. Paul is not the fresh prince, <laughs> okay? That's not all we're saying here. What we are saying here is that it reads so well that it almost, if we're not intentional and in slowing down and considering the various elements, we can just speed right through it and we can lose sight of what he is encouraging his readers to grasp. We're in danger, perhaps, of running right past all that Paul has to say to us here by assuming that we understand upon first reading the complexity of this statement. Look with me at verse 14. We've run brought near by the blood of Christ, Paul says in verse 13, for he himself is our peace. What a loaded statement from Paul. Just a few words that if we're just reading through Ephesians chapter 2, we can just slide right past. Or we, can just, we can move right past it without ever really considering all that he is encouraging his audience to grasp. As Andrew Lincoln makes note, peace here is not merely a concept. If you are currently or have ever experienced any type of hostility in terms of of relationship with other people, you are familiar with the concept of peace, right? It's kind of the, it's kind of the obliteration of that, which you are currently experiencing that you would like to see resolved, right? That's the concept of peace here. He says, man, we're talking about more than a mere concept. We're talking about more than a a mere state of affairs. Lincoln writes this. He says it is bound up with a person. Right, this idea of, of peace is actually beyond concept, right? It's beyond affair, but it's bound up in a person. Christ can be said to be not only a peacemaker, which he certainly is, or a bringer of peace, which he certainly is, but peace personified. 
Right? This is who Jesus is. He is peace. He doesn't just simply bring peace, although he does bring peace. He doesn't simply establish peace, although he does establish peace. Bigger than that, if you were to take this idea, if you were to take this concept and you were to wrap it in skin and stand it before a people and say, this is peace, it would be Christ. He is peace. In fact, he's the the prince of peace. Identified in Isaiah 9. Who secures peace, interestingly enough, through the blood of his cross. Colossians 9. He is our peace and as a result, he is our most treasured and sought after possession. See, what we're talking about here is is reconciliation. A word that we use a lot but a word that I'm afraid I too often assume you know. (laughs) And so uh, allow me for just a moment to share with you the words of Ray Orland. Pastor Ray writes this. He says, we were once God's enemies. Not that we consciously hated God, mostly we were oblivious to our defensive attitude. If anything, we blamed him for not seeming closer to us, but our clueless resistance did not stop God. Miss the good news of the gospel. He moved towards us with love and even with sacrifice through Christ who takes upon himself, interestingly enough, and these are not the words of, of Ray here, but it's this theme that it presents itself on every page of Scripture, right? He, he takes as himself the Prince of Peace, hostility and judgment and aggression against sin in order to, as the Prince of Peace, establish peace for those who have rejected it, for those who have gone the other way, for those who have fostered and, and fed ill will. He took his own righteous wrath against our rage by the atoning death of his son, that is Jesus, as our substitute. That is, he takes our place. He substitutes himself for us. No wonder then that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, you guessed it, reconciliation. He goes on to write this. He says, we did not earn or deserve our reconciliation. Do you get that? Like, Do we get that this morning? Man, how super helpful for us to grasp this concept that we did nothing to merit reconciliation. We didn't earn or deserve reconciliation, and we didn't meet God in the middle. Let us be super clear on that point as well. We contributed nothing except pouting indifference. What a beautiful picture. God was the one who accomplished our reconciliation for us at the cross. 
And God was the one who offered our reconciliation to us in the gospel. All we ever did was receive it with the empty hands of faith. Paul is unpacking a beautiful concept here in part two of Ephesians chapter two, and that is this, right? The the, the gospel makes it clear that reconciliation is accomplished on multiple planes in Christ. First, it is accomplished with God. That's what we're talking about when when we first consider reconciliation and even when we consider the way in which the gospel produces, as Paul is going to articulate in just a moment, horizontal reconciliation among men, It must begin with this understanding that there is reconciliation with God through Christ. It begins there. It doesn't stop there, but it begins there. As we see occupying a ton of space in this passage, there is an articulated hostility between two parties. We see articulated here that there is, there is restored human relationship from the reconciliation and restoration of our new position with God. Look with me at verse 14. Uh, again, we've already read and we've unpacked. We get that, that this, is a, this is a person being referred to here in verse 14. He is our peace. Christ Jesus, who has made us, as we continue on in verse 14, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We're going to talk about what that dividing wall is in just a moment, but he continues on in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Whereas hostility has previously existed, it It has now been put to death. It has now been buried. And there is opportunity for beautiful, flourishing fellowship. Reconciliation with God, which we have articulated, that leads to a horizontal relationship among peoples. Here in this passage, we're introduced to to two groups who are super familiar with tension and friction in their interaction. Jews. And Gentiles, even going back to, to verse 11, right? he says to the, to the uncircumcised, as you have been referred to by the circumcised, right? This, this derogatory term that was used to identify or distinguish one group of people from another group of people. There has been hostility. There's been tension. There's been friction. But now in Christ, these two groups experience unity. The old divisive distinction, circumcision and uncircumcision has been transcended through the deconstruction of ceremonial practice. Laws that because of the hardness of man's heart often led to contempt towards others, mutual animosity between two parties have been fulfilled and neutralized in Christ. Two groups of people who could just not get along. Jew and Gentile, one group feeling ostracized and looked down upon by another, resulting in hostility and tension towards said group. 
There's an emphasis from Paul here on the horizontal relationship, perhaps even most on the horizontal relationship. He's speaking towards the gospel's work to produce unity among these previously divisive people. Why? For what purpose? Well, because God's purpose has always been new creation, hasn't it? It's always been about that. You go all the way back to the beginning and we see the promise in Genesis 3.15 that there is this, this restoration. There's this reconciliation. There's this new creation. From beginning to end, we're able to observe it. Go to the very last chapters of your Bible and what do you see? You see this, this recreated place, right? You see a, a new temple and a beautiful city and there's a river flowing and it's, it's just like bringing about healing, right? It's watering trees that produce leaves that heal the nations. I mean, it's just beautiful recreation taking place. This has always been God's work. This has always been God's mission. We get a glimpse of how that plays itself out here in Ephesians chapter 2 as the relationship between these two people is restored by way of new creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus takes two divisive elements, Jew and Greek, and creates someone new. Did you catch it? Right, we see the dividing wall, verse 14, has been broken down in the flesh. The dividing wall of hostility, speaking specifically of the hostility between Jew and Gentile. That's what we're talking specifically about here. That's what Paul is referencing specifically here. Reconciliation with God that results in the tearing down of this, this wall of hostility that existed between these two parties. That he might create in himself a new man in the place of the two. And as a result, makes peace, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. One commentator makes the following note. He says, Christ has done more than simply bring Gentiles into Israel's election. This is the new creation that, that is being produced through the power of the gospel. Not simply bringing Gentiles into Israel's election. The new person that he has created transcends these categories. We're talking about a, a transcendent reality. It's not just simply, hey, Gentiles, allow me to bring you into kind of what's going on here, right? But it's, there's a transcendent new creation. There's a new existence. In its newness, it is not merely a an amalgam of the old in which the best of Judaism and the best of Gentile aspirations have been combined, not taking these two things and slamming them together. Instead, we see two elements which were used in creation have become totally transformed in the process. A new creation has neutralized the old hostility and thereby peace has been made. Peace is a person. And peace is a position. Okay, peace is a person. And peace is a posture. And interestingly enough, we almost need to embrace this new dichotomy of peace, this new definition of what peace is, because so oftentimes we identify or define peace as the absence of hostility, don't we? Which is somewhat limiting, and like so vague, right? So like if we're not fighting, therefore we are at peace. If there's not hostility, then there must be peace. But there's more than that that's going on here. There's more that the gospel accomplishes. 
He doesn't say that Christ has created a new man, reconciling us to God and now strengthening us to suppress our hatred toward others in Christ who have previously experienced disunity with us. No, in verse 14, the the metaphorical wall between Jew and Gentile, this attitude of superiority and hostility has been torn down. It has been brought down. We were separate. You were separate. But through the blood of Christ, you have been brought together. The flesh of Christ is torn open. The flesh of Christ is, is torn open, making healing possible through faith. Again, one commentator makes note, true reconciliation with God cannot hang in midair as an abstraction. It moves right into our hostilities and our resentments towards one another. Here's what, here's what Paul's saying here. Here's what Paul's saying here in these, in these few verses, right? It's that the gospel creates for us sinners previously separated outside of the commonwealth, outside of hope, lacking relationship, lacking fellowship, new posture, new relationship, new benefit, new privilege between you and I and Christ. Right, we are adopted into the family. If you're in Christ, you're a, you're a son. If you're in Christ, you are a daughter. He is our Abba. He is our Father. We cry out. We look to and, and love Him. We desire what He desires for us in our lives. Our desires take a back seat. We submit them to what He wants, what He calls for. In addition, man, we exist in, in beautiful, intimate harmony and relationship with one another. In the same way that the gospel transforms our relationship with God, so too it transforms our relationship with one another. That's what we're getting at here. There was hostility between you guys, Jew and Gentile. The gospel has transcended that. The gospel has obliterated that. Now, where there was at one time disunity, there is unity. There's this new man. Two have become one. We are a new creation now in Christ Jesus. I mean, what good news for the people of God. What hopeful news for those of you who are currently experiencing animosity and hostility in your earthly relationships. What is the answer? It's the gospel, right? It's Christ. The gospel brings about reconciliation. Right? It redeems our relationship with God and it redeems and restores our relationship with one another. Very quickly, verses 11 through 15. Christ unifies. Right? He, he unifies God and man in turn, making unification possible with those that we previously avoided. Just continues to unpack this, this, I, this idea. That's a review of point one as we look to point 17. Point 17, verse 17. 17 points. You guys get all those? How do we have 17 points there? Look with me at verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who were near. 
For through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We both have access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens. You were, but you're not anymore. You're not strangers and, and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ, those who are far off are brought near, obtaining access to the Father as members of his house. Let me say that one more time. In Christ, those who were far off have been brought near and have consequently obtained access to the Father as members of his house. This is what Paul is saying here. This is what he's articulating here. You guys aren't just like like moving in and sleeping on the couch. But you're a part of the family now. You're not just occupying space, walking around on eggshells, eating all your roommates' lucky charms, right? Like, that's not the way this is working now. Like, we're family. A new creation united in Him who now enjoys the same access to the Father as those of His chosen people who have looked to and believed in and on Christ. In Christ, you're no longer you're no longer subject. We are no longer subject to his righteous judgment. But as sons and daughters, we are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places, not because our sin has been overlooked, but because Christ has taken it on himself at the cross. Specifically in this case, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles are now united in Christ. Whereas there, whereas there was previously this gulf between these two groups, Between one another and between God, both have been now brought near, enjoying the same privileges, enjoying equal standing. This is a work that that, that Christ displays even as he pours out his life for the forgiveness of our sins. I want to take you briefly, quickly to John chapter 19. And we observe Christ on the cross. He's giving his life and and he looks down and below him is one of his disciples and his mother. And for not the first time, Paul ta- Jesus talks about how the relationship between these two is now very different as a result of what he is accomplishing in this moment. When he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his, his mother, woman, behold your son. Verse 27, then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. There is an explicit expression of this new relationship that the death and resurrection of Jesus secures. We're family with God and we're family with one another. And while the gap between you would seem more narrow because you are both a part of the same tribe, do not underestimate the power of this act to bring together. You've been brought near to God through Christ. And as a result, have been brought near to one another. As we close, I want us to think about some of the practical implications of this reality. Racism. Sexism. 
classism, ageism, ableism, these things are in their practice contrary to God's desire for human relationships and totally, totally unacceptable from the redeemed. In that, they are totally contrary to this element of horizontal reconciliation that Christ's death accomplishes. As we are all, verse 13, verse 17, brought near. As one commentator writes, the sacrificial death of Jesus is the only means of redemption. So also it is the only means of reconciliation. Paul's message in Ephesians chapter 2 is this. It is stand in awe of the reconciling power of the blood of Jesus. Stand in awe of the reconciling power of the blood of Jesus. See and recognize your alienation. See and recognize your separation. And now... In light of the finished work of Christ, I want you to understand your new position. I want you to understand your new state. I want you to understand your your new neighborhood, right? You've moved out of the old neighborhood and you've been moved into this new neighborhood. We relate differently with God and we relate differently with one another. There's not simply the absence of hostility, but there's a desire for what is good for you and glorifying to the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of the local church. We were talking about it this morning. As many of you guys know, we're going through a round of membership right now. And this morning we were talking about this reality, right? The the reality of the benefits of being a part of a local body where you can look around and you you see others who, who care for you, right? Desire what's good for you. You trust and you believe that produces opportunity for for some challenging conversations every now and then, right? But conversations we can can trust and believe are, are good and glorify our Father who is in heaven, who has accomplished a great work to purchase us for himself. We have new relationship with God and we have new relationship with one another. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, speak towards the power of the gospel to take these these horizontal relationships that are occupying opposite ends of the spectrum and bringing them together in the recreation efforts, right? The recreation power of the gospel. Two men, right, on, on far opposite ends of the spectrum who have been brought near, right, made into this, to this new man. It's the power of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're going, ma'am, I've got, I've got like, I've got serious, uh, I've got serious issues with, with certain people or with this person or broken relationship here. And how in the world is this ever going to be redeemed? How in the world is this ever going to be reconciled, man? Slow down, step back and consider the power of the blood of Jesus to bring us into union with God, the father. Wow. Right. The power of the blood of Christ to bring us into union with God the Father. As we observe this reality, does that not then drastically transform our understanding of the power of the gospel, the blood of Jesus, to bring close earthly relationships that are maybe even at this moment experiencing tension and hostility? What do we need? We need Christ. Right? We need Christ. We need, we need the gospel. 
I want you to look around for a moment. I want you to look at the people in this room with you. The blood of Christ brings us near to one another. Unity, union. The power of the gospel that we come here this morning to celebrate. Reconciling man to God. Reconciling man to one another. What a beautiful picture. We need this. Right? We need this. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going um, I'm going to invite um, I'm going to invite the, the guys to come forward and um, in just a moment we're going to come to the table. Um, they're going to lead us and we're going to sing a new song. Now I want to caution you, okay? Because this is we don't typically do new songs at the very end like this. Um, but we are this morning, but in doing so, um, I want to kind of like I want to recenter us on, on kind of what we're doing as we, as we kind of begin to draw to a conclusion, right? Um, here's what I don't want to happen, all right? I don't want to pray in a moment and then us to kind of like begin to just turn it off and come to the table and kind of like participate in this, in this act, just kind of like passively, right? And then to go back to our seats and to stare at the screen until the words come on and to kind of like sing, but really to be thinking about like where we're going next, right? Like we need all of this. This time, right? And so here's what I want you to do. I want us to take just a moment and I want us to just, I want to just pray where we are. Um, I, I want to pray um, that we would em, embrace the, this, this picture of a gospel that is powerful to transform the entirety of our lives. It transforms our relationships transforms the way that we see and understand and worship God, transforms the way that we, that we see and care for and relate with one another. I want us to pray about this. I want to pray for gospel perspective. Let's to pray for gospel centrality in our lives. And then we're going to come, we're going to take up the elements. But then as we go back, I want you to go back and I want you to, I want you to prepare to sing. Okay. Like, like let's lean into this new song that these guys are going to lead us in this morning. Knowing that as, as we draw to an end here, that we're going to like announce a couple of things and then we're going we're gonna to go back out into the world, right? Sent, God's people on mission. And we need all of this as we prepare to go. Be intentional. Fight the flesh. Fight your mind, right? Lean into these last few moments that we have together as the people of God restored and unified through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, you are a good, good God. You love us and um, you redeem us. You rescue us from the power of, of sin and hell. You call us unto yourself and you restore us into to right relationship through the blood of Jesus. You restore our relationship with, with you. You reconcile us with you. And then you restore our relationships with one another. We are a, a people. We are your church and, and Christ is our head. We desire corporately and individually gospel centrality to see our, our lives and our relationships and the world through the lens of your redemptive work, your plan to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to yourself. As we come to the table, still our souls produce within us gratitude, Affirm afresh within us the power of the gospel 
Convict our hearts. Encourage us through your spirit. And help us to worship in, in humility and authenticity. As we take of the bread and the cup. A foretaste, this meal, this meal that we enjoy with you by way of the presence of of your spirit who now dwells within us. A meal that we enjoy with, with brothers and sisters whom we love, whom we've been made to love, who love us. Father, make this a Make this a sweet time for the people of God. Display your goodness, your compassion, your kindness, as this is a display of your faithfulness. We love you and we're grateful for your love for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.